Hello and welcome to another episode of Make Something Awful. My name's Richard. I'll be your host um, because I am the host. Um, sometimes uh, when you're speaking to people, you have a level of expectation and um, and sometimes you have a level of excitement. Now, um, the person I have on tonight has been somebody who has... Um, in their own way has taken me through their podcast um, from the the heights of hilarity to the kind of a depth of kind of introspection and 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 and, and the kind of an emotional rawness on many occasions and um, try as I might I could never ever see a connection in terms of the tabletop space so to bring them on into a situation where we kind of had to, to say have you ever looked at Monopoly? And they would have went, yeah, well, I guess I have. <laughs> and that was the connection there. Then I don't think that would have worked. However, when a couple of weeks ago I was listening to the this uh, gentleman's wonderful podcast and uh, on a little kind of sidetrack, they started to talk about kind of, um, kind of music. And, uh, and then I thought, there's a go. There's my hook. This is it. We're going to go all in. So um, this is going to be all about Everything to do with music, everything to do with creation of music. Make Something Awful is, as said before, is all about people in a creative sphere and what they have done in their creative sphere regarding things that they are passionate about, the things that they love and what's taken them from their very first to kind of what they are doing now. So joining me, I have the wonderful CJ. You might know him as CJ from Twin Humanities. You might know him as the wonderful Coffee Jesus from Twitter. So... Hello, CJ. Thank you very much for coming on, first of all. No, thank you very much for, for having me, for that lovely Can intro. And uh, uh, it's it's weird to be sat here and not have kind of preparation for an episode, so I ask that you look after me, please. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm kind of, I'm very aware that um, it's incredibly horrible of me because normally when I've asked um, your, um, the, the Auburn warrior, the associate... <laughs> Who's full of stardust on? He just mm. rocks up five minutes before and he's just like show notes. Really? You think so? Yeah. Go. Know those feels. <laughs> There's a surprise. But I know that you're a you're a you're a much more kind of um measured um <laughs> and thoughtful soul when it comes to these things. So um I think I'm kind of throwing you in the deep end with a kind of a baptism of fire. But um I mean, we 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 had a bit was of a chat before this, and it it is it is a little bit of a shame that we hadn't click record earlier because we were we were nat- nattering yeah. away, and it was just like we we should we should kind of do this because it we should kind of do this. Mm. <laughs> we should kind of get on with this, but um, yeah, I mean, one thing that comes up again and again, um, whether it's mentioned in passing or whether, as I say, whether it was kind of like a featured section on a, the recent kind of Twin Humanities podcast was your continual kind of love of music. And one thing you've never spoken about in to any great length is kind of your involvement in the kind of the creative kind of musical scene. But um, to me, from what I get, music is an extremely important kind of kind of part of your life. And do you know when it kind of, do you remember your first kind of time you kind of went, oh, and you really, you really appreciated a kind of a piece of music, what kind of first maybe made you, um, uh, kind of took your breath away? 
I mean, we I grew up in sort of quite a musical family, and that my mum was really into um, like the the Beatles and kind of uh, Motown and stuff. My dad was more into Clifford T. Ward and Roxy Music mm-hmm. and the Stones and stuff. And you know, as 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 torn as my family was growing up, um, I you know I can still think of. Like the the I think it's mantelpieces by Clifford T. Ward has this picture of the Mad Hatter in the in the center, and I mm-hmm. I can still think of Sunday mornings with that spinning on. You know those big stacker systems which were all in one, oh, and, yeah. they, and they got yeah. sort of the, the smoke glass door that went tink, and then yes, and you pressed it in, um, and you know the the smell of bacon wafting up the stairs and stuff, and. Um, you know, I, my uncle Michael was a um, was a big one as well. Uh, when I got up to Manchester, you know, you, you go up with sort of a, a massive pack of C nineties and come back with he, he, he was he was he was really into his his music and stuff. But I remember, I think there was one specific instance, and I think it's informed a lot of not only my an early connection with music, but even the way that. I analyzed story was a song called The Stranger by Billy Joel, which is mm-hmm. basically detailing that uh, people wear masks in their everyday. And it's, um, it depends on who they're with as to which one, uh, they've got. And there was, you know, um, we all have a face that we hide away forever that we take outside and show ourselves when everyone is gone. Some are satin, some are steel, some mm-hmm. are silk and some are leather. They're the faces of the stranger and we love to try them on. And like as a, as a kid, I was listening to this and it just seemed like a, a superhero thing. I was like, you know, you, yeah, you, you put the yeah. mask on, you can become somebody else. It was only when I heard that like much later in life. And, you know, it's one of those where you haven't heard a song for like a zillion years and then it comes on and your brain's just, it's like, there are, there are important things, like really, really sort of, uh, uh, deliciously knowledgeable things that maybe you should, you should know. But somewhere in a back room in your mind, the lyrics to The Stranger are still there. <laughs> and you, you kind of start singing along and just all the words coming out. And, but you, you're looking at yourself and you're going like, how is this happening? It feels like an out of body experience. And I remember listening to, like, say that that song through headphones. But um, I think the the major point for me was uh, the Commodore sixty four, because uh, they were for the uninitiated. These were the the early days of computer music, and the uh, Commodore sixty four had a high end synth chip in it. And the musicians were not only composing for it, but they were coding those things in as well, like way before, you know, they, they developed music software and stuff. And, uh, these musicians were pioneers. They, they dropped my jaw and I would buy games based on those musicians. And for all of the people that will go like, I've had to wait 30 seconds for Bloodborne to load that level back. There, there was, there was something about, right, putting, putting in the cassette and then there'd be a, a few moments of kind of, and then music would come on and there'd be a loading screen, but the piece of music yeah. often was completely specific and, uh, would be, often be sort of a, an apparatif 
to the level that was that was coming up, it would be a lead-in. And it was sort of, right, sit there and get excited for the next level of this game whilst listening to a piece of music that absolutely stops you breathing and just puts goosebumps on your arms. And um, those musicians were... They were my Beatles. It was music that my parents didn't understand at all. But it just, you know, it, I, I played it to bits. And then sort of years later, like my my friend Jeff had one of these, you know, those caravan tellies that were, it's like a like yeah. a block, but there was a handle and you propped it up on the yeah. handle and there was a TV screen at the front and then sort of a, a radio to the right of that. And then on the top, <laughs> yeah. there was like a, a cassette player and it was yeah. a way of, Plugging in, I'd take my Commodore 64 around a way of plugging it into into there and actually being able to record these things for uh, for my mm. my Walkman. So I'd, I'd I'd have I'd be listening to it on on there as well. Um, and I used to do was the um, hmm. so was the was the was being kind of liking the Commodore stuff. Was that kind of like you claiming your own piece of land? Because nobody else kind of understood why you liked it so much. So, you know, people say, oh, I really like the Beatles. I was like, yeah, I can understand why. It's like, oh, I really like the Eagles. Oh, I can understand why. I really like, you know, George Harrison or I like, you know, the Monkees or, you know, music that was kicking around or the Motown stuff. I really love, like, you know, Stevie Wonder. But if, you know, as you're going into the 80s, you got kind of like the New Romantics and then you turn around and say, well, I really like this loading screen from that song. Was it a kind of a, was it your own kind of piece of land that you could own that nobody else kind of had access to I don't think time. I don't think when you're young there's there's really that particularly a massive amount of tribalism in in that regard because you just absorb stuff you just mm-hmm. you know you listen to stuff on the radio and you'll find things and you'll get favorites but um I I don't think it was specifically me being sort of obstinate in that in that regard because there were other Kids at, at school who'd also got Commodores, and you know we'd mm-hmm. we'd we we talk about sort of th- these these sort of things. But um, don't know. I, I even even in that regard, I, I clicked onto man, Go West with my band, and I I <laughs> love that first album. And then they did a second album, which was a version of the first album where they just yeah. pulled it apart. And if anyone remembers twelve inch remixes. It was essentially yeah. um, people, and it was only really a thing, kind of in the uh, in the eighties, where somebody would take a song and just break it apart, and they'd just have loads of instrumentals or uh, extra choruses, or and often these songs were better than the original. And the second Go West album uh, just literally smashed the hell out of the first album, deconstructed it, and I remember listening to it and just going like, "What?" And I, th- I think maybe even looking back, that gave me an idea of dynamics. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'd ever questioned form up until that point, but it, it, it did blow my mind. But I don't think it was a, I don't think it was even a purposeful thing. Just my mind was like, oh my God. And just reveling in the moment without, uh, particularly deconstructing it in that kind of way. I think it was, you know, a number of years later in, in band stuff that I uh, I kind of got a lesson in that. 
I mean, to me, the kind of the I was a Spectrum boy, mm. so I you know I grew up with. I mean, the Spectrum was never ever known really well for its music, but it still had its own lovely, especially like um, Ocean getting into stuff when it was doing things like Robocop, and it was kind of starting. They were starting to get their way around, kind of bringing round tunes. But to me, it was <clears throat> the wonderful thing about computer music was that it was fairly kind of inaccessible that you couldn't easily go down to like a a kind of a music shop and say, right, I want to be able to make music just mm. like this. And they'd go, you what? You know, I think that even the Casio keyboards kind of, maybe kind of, but you could never kind of get the kind of the beauty of what you were getting out of the Commodore 64 and certainly, you know, the, you know, the, certainly the Commodore 64, the Spectrum may be different, probably a good, a good well-programmed Casio I don't know. No, they they kind the of got thing. there with Spectrum with the one to eight because it shared the same uh, sound chip as the Atari yeah. ST did later on, and uh, oftentimes whilst there were a lot of Commodore specific musicians like Rob Hubbard or Matt Gray, uh, if you're talking specifically about Ocean, you got Matt Galway, John Dunn, yes, who were doing really good sort of versions of stuff with uh, with the one to eight and. Um, so it got there, and Ocean were a Ocean were a big one with me. Um, I'd like whenever I'd go up to because my mum's side of the family is from like Manchester, and whenever mm. I'd go up there, I would literally beg to just walk outside the Ocean offices, um, and just because I knew that somewhere they probably even weren't in at the weekend. Yeah, but yeah. just sort of knowing that it's like there's Santa's workshop. <laughs> because I, you know, I, I look in magazines like Zap, and they'd be going like, "Oh, uh, the Ocean have signed the rights to uh, to Grisor, and uh, Simon Butler's doing it, and he's doing it with Dave Collier." Or I knew all of those names, um, and yeah, it's so that was a, a big thing. But Ocean, Ocean were amazing musically, whether it was you know Spectrum, Commodore, or, or whatever. Did you? I mean, did that encourage you to start your own adventure? I mean, when did you pick up and start creating a little bit of music? Was that well, well down the line, or did it you, was, you yeah, know, it was, have an inkling? It was a, it was a bit further down the line actually. I'd, I'd, um, I, I acted a lot when I was a kid, and oh, uh, yeah. I had a massive argument with my drama teacher at school and refused to work for her. And um, <laughs> <laughs> which was on the premise that uh, yeah. we were we were put into these groups, and uh, the other two lads that I was with were just asking about, and I did this entire presentation, like got mm. everything together, and I can't even remember exactly what it was, but we got this thing together, and they wanted to go off and do their own thing with the thing that I'd done, and I was like. Right. Sod that, you've done no work and you can't just take it and, and do it yourselves. Because uh, we had mm. a disagreement on something. They wanted to put a song into into this this play, I think, that didn't even suit it. So so yeah. songs were an aspect of that, I guess. But yeah, I, 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 I stopped acting at that point and kind of as a, as a mm. stroppy teenager, I started writing poems and then eventually got into... Uh, like going to clubs and uh, dancing, going to see bands and stuff, and 
eventually just turned to my friend Rob and just went, let's start a band. Because I knew he played guitar and he was, he was, he was, yeah. uh, he was doing like bass stuff at that point. And, um, yeah, it, I, I think it, it then romanced a little further still where I got this, uh, there was a, a, a band, they never particularly made it, uh, but they were on Geffen in the States. They were a band called, yeah. a band called Taiketo and they okay. were kind of, Somewhere between REM and Bon Jovi, like big acoustic, like rock stuff. And I love them to pieces. They were, they, I listen to them all the time, loved seeing them live. And uh, they went away for a while and they eventually wrote a second album. And this album was two weeks away from being released and they got dropped. And my world fell out of my out of my shoes um and there was a there was a journalist i knew at raw magazine at the time uh who had sort of been to been to stay with a couple of times in london where i'd done gigs and he was like look they've even gone to the point of sending out press copies of this i'll copy you the cassette and i'll give it you when i see you when i see you in london so he got this i don't forget which i think it might have been uh, might be something like Freak of Nature or something that I'd, I'd gone to see in London. And he got this uh, this album to be signed. And inside this album was this cassette. And he gave it to me. And all through this gig, as much as I enjoyed it, I, was, I, I knew this cassette was in my pocket and I shouldn't have it. And um, I, <laughs> uh, I eventually got back in the wee small hours of the morning and put this cassette on and just cried as the dawn, dawn came up because wow. I got it. And as the story goes on a little bit, they, they eventually got an independent deal for this album and they were coming to, yeah. no- they were coming to Nottingham to do a signing. And I, I took my wall with me and uh, uh, I went in, you know, there was a queue outside, uh, Wayhead Records as it was then, and there was a queue outside and I took it all in. They were like, this is amazing. Uh, would you mind waiting until we've seen everybody else and we'll sign everything? And I was like, yeah, wow. of course. <laughs> and I stood there sort of chatting with them, and particularly like Danny the singer had got like a Ghost Rider t-shirt on, so we started sort of chatting comics and stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Um, got everything signed and they were like, well, what are you doing after this? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to wait for the gig later on. And, and they were like, do you want to come back yeah. with us? What? <laughs> and so I went back to Rock City with them and they were really nice. And yeah. I watched them uh, rehearse and they did a load of old Motown covers, which which weren't even in the set. And um, then... They're like, you know, we've we've uh, we've got to go and get ready for the gig now. We'll we'll see you in a bit. So they then came to me after mm, the gig, mm. and they were like, "What do you think?" And I was just, you know, starstruck, spellbound, and stuff. And they were like, Are "You coming to any of the other gigs on the tour?" And I was, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going up to Bradford in a couple of days' time, I think it was." And they were like, "Whichever shows yeah. that you can get to, you guest listed." What? <laughs> and that just blew my mind that. My favorite, my, my favorite band in the world treated me as though I was the most important thing in the world. And that meant everything. 
And um, yeah, did, like Danny and I stayed friends for a long time. That that guest listing mm. for that tour lasted for every tour, which was really crazy. Wow. And even with the band I was previously in, because I, I sang with him on stage at a certain point as well, but my my last band, the last gig we did together was supporting him. And it was just kind of lovely to be playing in front of a, a crowd in Sheffield, as it was then, and um, to just look to the side of the stage and see the fellow that made you want to kind of form a band in the first That's place, amazing. just like, just looking, looking back and like throwing you a smile. It was, it was, it was great. But yeah, that's long-winded story, but it's, it's, it's worth telling. But there was a, a certain romance in that. And oh God, they were even on, there was some sort of rock show. I think it was Raw Power that was on two in the morning or something. And yeah, yeah. there was an interview with Taiketo then before sort of I'd, I'd, I'd met them at that, um, uh, at Wayhead Records. And they referenced a fax that I'd sent through. Uh, And I was like, no. So that made me even more excited for kind of that returning gig. But I had no idea sort of what was at stake. So there was, there was a little, a little storytelling in my romance with music then. And, you know, I started writing, didn't really know what I was doing, but that wasn't, I don't know. You, you, you make a, a lot of uh, full-hearted mistakes, I guess, when you first start writing. But, you know, I I was in love with doing it. And then a little further down the line with, still with still with Rob, who was, who was playing bass at that point. There was a, uh, a guy that joined the band Guitar Wise, who was literally like, this needs more dynamics. You need to, you need to, uh, step up to a chorus here, try pushing your voice a little bit more. And, you know, th- there were, there were yeah. a lot of specifics in there where I was going, I hadn't really thought about that, but that instilled a lot of, right, this needs this, this needs this. And I think that's yeah, where yeah. my producer had came on, where I, I could laser focus into something and just, I don't know, disappear into my head, go full rain man. <laughs> so how, how old were you at the time? I mean, were you kind of late teens, early 20s when this was all kicking off, or was this a little bit later down the line? I think the Tank Out stuff was probably about 18-ish. That must have been mind-blowing to be that kind of age and know that you're kind of on the guest list and you can just rock up at a venue. Because I know people that would, you know, they would give their right arm (laughs) to kind of be in that situation. Did you ever kind of feel a bit, kind of go, oh, oh, I'm here. Oh, why am I here again? <laughs> it's, it was, it was, it was lovely, and the one hand, mm. and I never took it for granted. But part of it was, you know, the the adventure. Like Rob had this, this old uh, Vauxhall Chevette, I think it was, like saloon, oh, wow. uh, metallic blue called Bullet, and Bullet, impossibly. <laughs> Impossibly, it was his first car. It cost him about hundred quid, and impossibly got uh, got us all around the country. And I think that because Rob and I drifted drifted away from one another after after a while, and when I saw him years later, he got a different car, and I was like, "What happened to Bullet?" He was, and he he said something along the lines of, "He says my my wife basically shamed shamed it away from me." <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> well, yeah, Bullet got us. Bullet got us all over the place. But part of the romance oh, was getting in the car, 
putting some songs on, catching up, yeah. having a chat, rocking up at a venue, uh, meeting up with people, like not just sort of band folks, but other fans that we that we knew and we recognised that were sort of following them around the country and stuff. And mm. and yeah, then they were just... It was it was fairly cheap to go and see sort of artists as well. A lot of artists came over from from the states at that point, so you'd impossibly see artists in really like disco too, as it was in Rock City. Like uh, I saw, God, this big big rock band that were again they 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 didn't quite reach the stratosphere, but um, they were a, a band called Giant that I loved that just had this massive production sound. That and, rings a bell. And the singer-guitarist was a session guitarist and eventually went to be a session guitarist again. And I remember sort of after the band folded, I'd look in like Mariah Carey videos and he'd be in this big, hiding in this big <laughs> jumper with an acoustic, like playing a solo and stuff. And he eventually became oh, like a, a massive sort of country producer and did, did lots of stuff with like Keith Urban. And I think he did a Bon Jovi album and and we saw them in this tiny little stage um, in in Nottingham and they were phenomenal. They could barely fit on that stage with the keyboards and everything else. But yeah, we, we saw like Blind Melon, uh, who the lead singer oh uh, took his life and he, he sang Don't Cry with Guns N' Roses. And, you know, we, you, there'd just be so many bands that'd be rocking up there and... Um, the venue itself was was fantastic. Even on even on rock nights, you get it's the it's the, the only time I've ever seen a DJ play a crowd like a strategy game, where you got your your mixture of people like your pop rock stuff, your grunge, uh, your glam, uh, like you know various different groups, and he'd tire them out. He'd have like crossover songs between those groups, but he'd basically knacker you out. And then get you running to the bar, like smashing down drinks because you've just been yeah, been, yeah, been yeah. dancing. And then a, a a different group of people would would leap on the dance floor and stuff. And it was it was not. And that that guy Andy Copping is in charge of download now. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so it's yeah, good times. Made lots of friends. It's all changed though. It, I mean, it's all changed. I mean, accessibility to gigs. I remember like seeing things like you know, Oasis have because I. Was in Edinburgh mm. at university, so I remember kind of reef, kind of turning off. I remember mm. kind of like you know seeing the ambient advertising. I remember Oasis's first days, kind of like um, playing you know playing venues in Edinburgh. I remember the um, meeting um, the lead singer of Stiltskin at the time, and wow. I don't remember if you remember them. Yeah. We had kind of like uh, it was it Ray the boy's name was, and. Um, he used to drink in. He used to drink in a pub in um, just off. Um, I think it was maybe George Street in Edinburgh. The same pub all the time, and that's what he did. And then apparently one night he just kind of like walked in, and he he came back when he could. But Stiltskin was kind of like their big huge thing for a while, and he just came in. And he says, "Right, okay, I'll just just came in and sorted everybody out of the bar." He says, "Here you go. Here's a whack of cash because he'd been there for so long." Oh wow! And he just he said said something along the lines of, "Just because you had put up with my shit for so long." <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing, and they just kind of like he said, you know, he, he didn't go splash for the cash, but you know, we then met him kind of subsequently. It was just like a down to earth guy who was kind of fairly, um, 
philosophical about where they were. He was kind of aware that they'd scored this huge hit with regards to the commercial, and he wasn't quite sure of where where things would go. And I don't know ever. I don't. I you know I'm ignorant enough. That I don't know what happened to them. They, they they released their album. They did they did that was back in the day where you could release an album and you could make some money, mm. and I'm sure you did well at the time. I don't know what the guys kind of do now, but Edinburgh was always this kind of hotbed, and there was always kind of kind of bands kind of going around. I mean, are you? I mean, one thing you are you were you primarily singing or were you you know yourself then? Yeah, I was I would, I, would, I was singing at, at at that point. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd always say I'd always written sort of poems and stuff, but um, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and you know, going going back to what you were saying about the, the fella in Stiltskin, I think there's there's always sort of a, a degree of imposter syndrome within a lot of yeah. the most creative people. Um, I remember uh, I got into a, a guy called uh, Butch Walker, who I absolutely loved, uh, who mm-hmm. was in a big band called The Marvelous Three that had a had an American number one and then put out uh, a number of solo albums, which were an album called Letters, which I really loved. Um, and uh, followed that with a brilliant album. We went, we went to see him at, is it Barfly? I think it was in, in London. And Rob had a fanzine, a rock fanzine. And we were one of wow. only three people that got to interview him. There was Phil Jupitus. Um, <laughs> what was the, there was the um, I can't think of the, the name of it, the, the the magazine that benefits the homeless um, that they big issue big issue yeah that was the second one yeah yeah and there was me and Rob and uh, we we went in there and we we got a certain amount of time with him and mm. uh, we we sort of talked with him within this allotted time slot and then he went. Uh, I've got to be going upstairs now. And we were like, "Oh, okay. Well, thanks for." It. He was like, "No, we can we can carry on. Do you want to? Do you want to come up?" <laughs> so we, we went upstairs and we carried <laughs> on this amazing. conversation. He was just a lovely guy. Yeah, yeah. And later that night, we were talking with some of the other fans as we were waiting for the gig to start. And there was a young lad who said, uh, "He because basically Butch was in London. He was doing this gig, but he was doing strings at Abbey Road." And uh-huh. um, this lad basically said he was a huge fan of Butch Walker and asked, and he was at college, I think it was. And he said, can I do my project on you coming to London? And Butch Walker was like, yeah. So this lad started this little uh, film of Butch being at Abbey Road. And as this lad was saying that Abbey Road eventually went, uh, you can't film in here. And he was like, what? And they were like, it, it'll cost mm. you to film in here. He was like, what do you mean? They were like, it's wow. two grand. And Butch caught, Butch, uh, caught word of this and he just went, stick it on the bill. <laughs> and this, this, lad, this lad had stars in his eyes. He literally, yeah. he, he was so made up that his hero just was, was so nonplussed about being a rock star and being the big I am and was kind of very much about the people that he interacted with and that that was that was his response and this lad literally glitter coming out of his veins it was great um but that I don't know when when you're coming into contact with people like that it it just 
I don't even think it's an obvious thing, but it just makes you want to strive and keep going and you're in admiration of, you know, they say never meet your heroes and oftentimes that's, that's, that's good advice, but there are also some amazing people out there that are doing this for altruistic reasons and reasons where they couldn't really stop if they wanted to, I think. Yeah, I think it breaks down and there's, there seems to be two there's two sides to the creative process. I think you get to a point and people go, but aren't they minted? Surely they can just retire. And I think it's like you could say, like, say in the movie side of things, you could say something like, say, Harrison Ford. <laughs> people are going to, why are you doing Indiana Jones 17 or whatever? Mm. And it's like, because he likes going out and mucking about in it. And there's generally people that they're still having to bust their gut out. And it's like the old thing about... Um, Spinal Tap with Puppet Show, hmm. and you know some people have to, some people have to continue to work because the measure of success that they get at the time, maybe isn't as great and amazing as it is, you know, as as it's led to believe. There's an you know, incredible, there's an incredible documentary on BBC iPlayer at the minute uh, with Kate hmm. Nash, and yes. I only I only connected with this because of an article that was in Rolling Stone, and um, I watched watched it and it's so warts and all about somebody that gets success and then gets manipulated by their label then they get dropped then they're spending their own money on touring around the world uh their manager takes money from them surreptitiously to pay for his own wedding uh they move to hollywood they try and get acting gigs they try and get gigs uh singing songs about body wash and uh, all these other things, and then it eventually sort of goes into uh, getting the the job for uh, Glow on Netflix, and um, yeah, it's, because, and, um, and sort of the, coming back around to eventually, mm, and eventually coming back around to 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 make an album again. But it was so so warts and all. But a lot of that was how making money and the need for money can sort of sway people away from making art. And um, yeah. it's very, very watchable. It's fantastic. But um, yeah, there's, there were lots of lots of red flags, I guess, as well. Well, she was, um, I think she was also recently, she was um, trying to take a company to court because they had pretty much stolen some of her music to use in some kind of commercial venture. All right, and okay. I'm pretty sure it was herself and it was basically she was like saying you've kind of taken my music and you're using it without my permission completely and and, you know this is a big corporate was just going so we'll just take you know we're big corporate America we'll take what we kind of want and the interesting thing was there was people that were kind of they were kind of commenting I think it was either an Instagram or Twitter post to say that this is terrible this is somebody that's looking for their first kind of their they're kind of their big break, and there were folk from kind of obviously from the UK going, um, no, this is Kate Nash. She's been kicking around for kind of like basically yeah. donkey's years, you know. But but um, um, I think it's it's always interesting as well with artists when the things that they write when they're destitute or they're not they've not had a degree mm-hmm. of success versus what happens when I don't know they they don't particularly want for anything. And I know a connection that you and I had from the podcast where I talked about returning to music uh, was uh, the band Moona, 
and yes. uh, they don't do interviews very often and they're one of the reasons why I, I fell in love with music again and wanted to make music again but in this particular article I read they were saying that they got chosen to be a support for Harry Styles as he went around <laughs> the world and they basically went on this massive rock and roll roller coaster and this is the point where you kind of think that this would be the point where there's the disconnect from the first album but they were basically yeah. saying that they got back home. All of their friends had moved on from them. Uh, some had left. Some had gotten married. Uh, they'd not got an apartment. They moved into their aunt's house, and they felt deathly, deathly alone. Yeah, yeah. And I read that, and I was like, I have to hear this album. And you and I have discussed before about um, kind of really big, like bright songs that have got uh, a darker underpinning to them. Um, and the first single from the second album was is like a big dancey kind of sing along stuff, and then about the third listen, you go, "Oh, this is somebody that's resisting suicide," and is kind yeah. of looking in the mirror and is trying to find a reason to go on. And I was like, yeah. "Fuck!" Um, and you know, I I love that kind of that honesty if something's got a legacy if 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 i can find a degree of storytelling underneath or between any of the songs on an album i'll i'll just i'll keep digging and that that band is is one of the reasons why sort of a level of honesty to the degree of not even consciously thinking that you might seem pathetic of uh in examining life as to whether you should be here of or love or mm -hmm. adventure where you've come from where you're going any of that sort of stuff if somebody lays it out as honestly and as and with a degree of eloquence that that band does all day long see when when you were singing yourself i mean were you were you i mean did you do like a almost like a stars in the rise and tonight you know, CJ's going to turn into... And did you turn into some kind of personality when you were on stage? Or were you just kind of... If I'd seen you on stage, I would have not... There wouldn't have been a discernible difference between you when you were just off stage and just finished. I mean, did you did you kind of project anything or were you just kind of going... Because you sound, you sound to me like you're a type of artist who would just project using your emotions. You, you wouldn't... I wouldn't necessarily you'd have to feel it in order to be able to sing it, if you know what I mean. I don't, I can't imagine you kind of putting on a big, huge act. I think there was if a... you know, when you were going to... There's a degree of storytelling in it and me losing myself in it and mm -hmm. wanting to get that across. Um, mm -hmm. You know, particularly back then, I always had a, a thing for wanting to kind of prove how big my voice could be. And I got mm. that in my back pocket for if I if I needed it, and I I love to reach for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it, at that point especially. It was very much about losing myself in in story and song, and and sometimes mm. it can be offshoots from the way that you've written it, which can affect a song. Like you know, there's one where 
I got a, a message from Alas on, I think it was MySpace at this point. And um, wow. it was Alas who'd, who'd come to the gigs and she'd, she'd read a connotation into one of the songs. And it wasn't the way that I'd written it, but I could see that perspective and I could see how those ducks lined up in a row. And she basically said that she was in an abusive relationship and that um, he hit her and every yeah. time she moved to leave, he'd tell her he loved her and, conf- you know, confuse her and yeah, she'd stay yeah. where she was. And this kept on happening. And within this, the, the connotation that she'd heard in the song, she kept listening to the song and she kept listening to the song and she oh. left him. And I read this message and to have inspired the first inch of that movement, I still say is the the proudest thing that I've ever done. And it was, you know, not even consciously, but that was always there in that song afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it was, it was such an such an amazing thing to to read. I just sat there and sobbed. I mean, I'm, I'm an emotional animal anyway, but to, yeah, yeah. to hear somebody saying something like that was 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 amazing. But yeah, it, it, to backtrack, it, it 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 was very much about getting into the songs, and, and there was a degree of performance in. Like a, a physical performance in there, definitely. But I don't think I was ever the sort of yeah, yeah, the the super showman that I I wanted to be in in touch of in in terms of kind of flying around the stage, like flicking my hair to the side and like just you know rocking a, a, a crowd, thinking that they were uh, they would sort of Wembley or anything like that. But although there was this one converted church that we that we did, I think it was one. It might even have been my my first gig with this particular band. And yeah. uh, they got, there was a bar in the middle of the floor and then kind of these risen sort of chairs and tables on either side. And we had to go yeah. up these stairs to the to where kind of the pulpit was. And there was this little bit where you could, you could walk out in front, uh, I presume where, you know, the reverend would stand and give his sermon and stuff. And for somebody that was <laughs> yeah, quite yeah. nervous at that point, I could sing into the rafters and I could not look at the crowd or I could look down at the crowd and it was like being at Wembley. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was, there was certainly a, uh, more of a, a physical performance at that point. But I was, I think going back to like my childhood of comics and books and stories and stuff, like once I started writing poems and then lyrics and then, uh, almost as an evolution of the acting, like with actually being on stage, there was, there was storytelling was always something that was super important to me, and and the honesty of getting that across. Were you? It was it musicals you did, or was it primarily acting? I mean, did you do the kind of the usual West Side Story kind of stuff like that as well, or is it? I did. I did do. Um, did do Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, where I was Charlie Bucket. And uh, wow. yeah, I've got a cold ticket and all that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was never kind of you know. Oh, I think my son's going to Rada. It was it was anything. Yeah. It, was, it was just me kind of loving acting. Um, but yeah, I again, it was it was just something that I enjoyed as a as a blighter. I think. 
And I, I mean, going forward, as as you've said, is that the band eventually, you know, you stopped. There was something that stopped you from making music. Yeah, there was. And I mean, there, there was. It's a, it's a difficult thing to adjust at the time to that. To kind of like saying, "Well, I'm not going to be doing this for a while on a regular basis." I don't think I I knew at that point that it was a it was a full stop. I mean, there've been various sort yeah. of bands along the way, and kind of a there was a a, a a few years between kind of that final band and you know the one that came before it. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, this one was you know the 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 last that I I was working with uh, moved up north, and mm-hmm. um, you know had our own sort of commitments up there and we we ended up sort of drifting apart and stuff but mm-hmm. the connection the, the the great thing within that was we got completely different record collections and what came out in the middle of that was neither her or me it was just kind mm. of chemistry and it also meant for I mean, as that went along, the weirdest thing was that often it was the the stuff that she'd write lyrically that I connect with the most, and vice versa. Um, yeah, yeah. But it also meant for like amazing mixtapes. Like, oh, I think you'd like this band. I think you'd like this band. And we mm-hmm, we did mm-hmm. we did a trip down south where she where I was going to visit somebody, um, and uh, she in. And she was going with a partner like to another point of the country and we were sort of splitting off at a certain point. But we were basically, we got like 50 songs each and we made however many CDs. And it was like, one of mine, one of yours, one of mine, one of yours, one of mine, you, one of yours. <laughs> CD filled up, start the next one. And we literally went all the way down south and then back again on these CDs. And it was great. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the fun part. But I guess with having that funnel for emotion, because, you know, of of being able to write something down and, uh, sometimes only realizing your what you were trying to say later on, there was a point, uh, where I had like an attic flat and I started painting, the songs onto like big pieces of paper and I'd, I'd write the lyrics out and I'd, I'd cut them out and stick them over the, over the top of like these paintings. And oftentimes yeah. I'd, I'd be lying in bed staring at these and just going, oh, so that's what I meant. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there's, you know, it, 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 it sort of spread itself out into, into other stuff. But with that gone, it was very difficult because I think I severed. I didn't go to to see any more gigs after that. Um, I just stopped because it, I missed it so much. Um, and but you were closer. I mean, you were closer than what an awful lot of people. I would have said, you know, normally people that are going at gigs. I mean, I mean, for you to be in, get involved in guest lists, for you to be interviewing kind of people and stuff like that, and, and, and you know, you're starting to get involved not just there's a kind of the external fan culture and then there's kind of reaching in slightly beyond that we are starting to kind of get the feel and the taste of things like that and i don't think it was ever that ever that mindful um Mm. i think i you know i fell into that taiketo guest list completely by accident and from Mm. based on a kindness when 
we went to see Butch Walker. It was it was Rob who got the fan scene, and I was you know I was just there sort of chatting along with the with one of my heroes at the same time, and you know asking a few questions about productions that he liked and and you know mm-hmm. things and songs, and it was more more kind of an inquisitiveness that I got um, on songs. So so, but I don't know in in the aftermath as well. I started I started writing books. And mm. uh, doing something that I could purely control on my own and would listen to movie soundtracks and game soundtracks and go into mm. a coffee shop on my day off. Um, and I bought this this tiny little netbook, which I've still got and I still use and has mm. never, never been on the internet. Um, it's just <laughs> purely for the point of writing and it's got like a quite a nice little keypad. And I'd write myself into a corner on my day off and then let it bother me for the rest of the week and then and wind me up to the point where I couldn't wait to get back to it again and I, I you know I I wrote it was a first novel then a second one in the same universe wow. and then um there was most recently there was me trying to do a sequel to the first one and uh that was quite difficult at first but was just me writing what I felt I think at that point and going with whims and then when all of that started tying together that was kind of neat and I pitched the first novel uh, a a lot um, when I was out of work and thankfully I somehow managed to talk the uh, the chocolate teapot of a return to work company uh, into a letting me use their photocopier to photocopy numerous copies <laughs> wow. of my novel and yeah. use their postage to not only send them out, but include stamped addressed envelopes <laughs> if they hated it. Um, oh, man. So I, I guess I was trying to turn the charm on on, on there. But um, yeah. I don't know. I was still super proud of that book, but nothing came of it. And uh, the weird thing is that... Um, the next single that we've got from the band is something to do with one of those books, which and in my head, when I figured it out, I was like, oh, I could do this. And it was a quandary that I got relating to the entire series of books um, within, uh, you know, it's difficult to try and figure out a villain these days for something. And there was always something that I was relating to that was sort of somewhere in the distance, which had this almost Robin Hood-like capacity to it with like a myth that was twisted through generations. And I was never quite, really quite sure what it was, even though I'd written something very, very definite in an old journal, which I found. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still wasn't sure. And you know, when you've got leaders like, like Trump, and like uh, like Johnson, it's difficult to 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 form a villain when those people are in power. So yeah, there was constantly this question, and then in my head it just went, "What is the thing that is kind of all destroying, all powerful? What if it's a song?" And that's the point where I just went right <laughs> and just like bombed out all of these <laughs> lyrics and stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's that's kind of that's really cool. So that that seems like a way of letting that universe 
out into the world, which is one kind of cool thing. But I also wrote something, set lyrics that I'm really, really proud of uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they were finished song-wise last night. And um, wow. and that relates to something that happens in one of the second books. And super pleased with these lyrics. And when I managed to get them syncing with the music in the way that I wanted to, it was one of those things where I was like, <laughs> and I was, I was, I was, I was saying to Luke, like, um, I was really getting into the zone with it. Had these things where there were a few points where I really wanted to belt things out, and then my neighbours came back, and it was half past ten. I was like, oh, uh, and I was like, I can, I can send you what's there. It's all there. I just had to pull back a yeah. little bit because I, I couldn't really yeah. sort of sky it and stuff. And I was like, but I'll send them to you if you if you want. And there was just silence. And I was like, maybe it's maybe it's just me that's that's being that's being giddy about this. Uh, yeah, I'll yeah. I'll go to bed. And he was like. Just washing up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you were gonna you were gonna you were gonna say that. I was like, yeah, that's fair enough. But I, I sent it early on tonight, and we 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 both got sort of very excited with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, and having <laughs> to come back around uh, after the previous band had finished, everybody seemed to want to do say. Whatever was in this week, like, oh, looking for a singer, yeah. Muse meets Foo Fighters. I know exactly what yeah. that sounds like. I want somebody with a complete yeah. different record collection to me. And that was one of the things that kind of kept me away from stuff. It was either that or cover bands. And um, I think there was a point, there was a, a gentleman called Matt Gray who wrote songs on Commodore 64, who came back uh to remake a lot of his own work and he was part of a in the meantime he was part of a a group called Xenomania who used to write songs for pop acts like Girls Aloud and One Direction and he produced the Pet Shop Boys album and he basically came back with a Kickstarter to remake his own stuff and other Commodore 64 uh folk stuff and it's just glorious it set me on fire when I first heard it and was sort of a, a nice little connection back to the kid that was waiting for a tape to load. Um, <laughs> Does it inspire you? Did, did it inspire you to kind of pick up stuff again and jump in? I mean, what I, I get, I mean, what, how do you write stuff? I mean, this, I guess this is, you know, you, you, you're telling about, well, we just did this and just did that. At the, at you, the point where I, I heard, Matt Gray's stuff again with the the Reformation albums. I was just I was just yeah. sitting there and, and just literally goosebumps and giddy and just enjoying <laughs> tones and and things that yeah. things that I remembered, things that I didn't, and just hearing them in a, a whole new way. But having that connection back to to being a kid, so there was that that sort mm. of that that line of string that sort of there was a can in the real world and then there was a load of string back to another can sort of when i was a, a kid <laughs> and and there was a there was a connection we were talking um yeah. there was you know there's the 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 moon album that uh that you and i connected on uh, after the podcast but that taught me lyrical honesty and stuff but it was then meeting up with somebody who had a very schizophrenic style of making their own music, which I completely yeah. admired. 
and um, when we did start writing it, it, it sort of it's a we we work on very different frequencies that I don't work in the same way as he does. He doesn't work in the same way as I do. But when we start putting ideas into when we when we do our own thing, there's often mm-hmm. like a really interesting mesh where I got, where where I don't know. There's these moments of of kind of connection, and it's again, it's neither of us and both of us. But then when we start working on mixes and we sort of start laser focusing on what it needs and what it doesn't, um, that's where it becomes interesting. But yeah, we we, we started out at first um, when Luke asked if I wanted to, to do some things together. We he sort of sent a, a piece of music over um, and it was only about two and a half minutes long. And I'd I'd written some. I'd woken up. That was it. I'd I'd woken up from a dream early that morning, and I'd written something down, and um, it was very vivid in this dream. And I woke up, and when I put after I'd finished writing this, and I made a a coffee, uh, I went on Twitter, and he says, "Oh, I've sent you a piece of music," and that was the point where I realised that what I'd written down went over it absolutely. Um, wow. And so that was a, that was the first point where, where we kind of sat back and we just went, hmm, this is interesting. We kind of like each other. Let's sort of yeah, pursue this. Yeah. And he'd send me pieces of music and I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd uh, the art of sort of writing lyrics for me is I'll go out to a coffee shop with, I've got a beautiful journal. This It's like, it's like sort of uh, thick, almost almost card like pages, like like papyrus. It's it's amazing. And I've got these wow. uh, glitter gel pens, and it's like writing in <laughs> like writing in magic on tome. And I've got very unusual handwriting. Anyway, I was told as a kid, I was told as a kid that I couldn't write in capitals. I had to do joined up writing, so I did joined up capitals. So my my writing wow. is sort of quite swirly. But it uh-huh. it's like hmm. What mood am I in for for writing for writing these lyrics? And I'll just—it's like a mood ring. I'll just pick. Yeah, this one's going to be quite emotional. <laughs> Purple. So, so I, I write I write lyrics in the coffee shop and listen to music, and then uh, I'll have that little netbook there. And oftentimes it's taking what's on the page and then putting it into a word document. But I'll I'll, I'll be very mindful of. Uh, not just alliteration, but punctuation, like putting full stops in uh, here and there and just thinking where I can pause and add drama and stuff like that. Uh, Luke will send over ideas and sketches that he's had of with pieces of music. And at times it's... Like the, the, the other day with the, the new song that we got, um, I got these lyrics that I was crazy, crazy proud of. And I was going through some of these pieces of music, just seeing which tone might fit, or if there was anything when I'd read along in my head where I could connect yeah. it with. And I'd find these drama points, which were um, these kind of connections between story-based moments in the lyrics and points where there's 
something in the music which changes tone or is about to break into something else and uh, get a timestamp on that and then see in my head how the how the words will flow to get to that point if there's anything I need to take out um, if there's anything I need to put in and try and break it down to to, to that um, like like last night I'd taken a few bits that I thought would work up until this solo and this drama point was exactly on the point of the solo and I knew that yeah. drama point worked and I knew in my head yeah. that I could get to that to get to that point. But it was only the point where I started singing and where I was like, wow, this is what it needs. And there's this wonderful uh, spontaneity of sort of following things through and trusting your instincts and and what comes out. And taking it through to that point, I was like, oh, that really worked. Right, where do I go from here? And then sort of yeah. trying to figure out the next stage and, and, and adding the collage and, and trying to figure out where the story and the... And, my side of things will will go from there. Um, once we've got that sort of sketch down, and uh, with the with the single with um, with Puppeteer, I did I did about eight vocal takes, I think, on that initially, where I just tried to do different things at certain points uh, over the lines and just literally mashed them all together and was just like, oh, I like it when that one goes down or that one goes up yeah, or I'd, yeah. I'd sound a bit breathy yeah. on that one and then just literally pulled that apart. But once once we've got sort of a, a sketch of where something's going, uh, that's where we start taking it to the next level and like with the, um, with the puppeteer mix. We started leaning into, you know, I, I, Luke was saying, oh, you... You know, you realize you're producing, right? And I was, I hadn't really thought about it, but I knew how I need to sound in my head. Um, and it was a case of us exchanging ideas as to what the song needed going forward. Like occasionally he would, he'd be like, oh yeah, I just, I added this and I think this would be really good. And I was like, mm -hmm. Christ, mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought of that. It was great. Um, or there'd be points where, um, like midway through Puppeteer, we got, we got a certain drum beat that was going on, and I was like, "Right, there's a there's a point where I, I it needs to step up, like story wise, and it's yeah, going to get yeah. dramatic." Um, yeah. Uh, in the air tonight, Phil Collins drums. It needs that, and like really like a thumping. It needs a heartbeat, and it needs to be to be sort of going yeah. forward from there. So we we got that, and then there was uh, the issue where. We got to a certain point before the solo, and I was like, it's a mad idea, but we've got these these sort of two worlds colliding in the song. I'd like some Japanese in it. Um, and so I asked my friend Kai, who sent me this amazing email, like super detailed of like, uh, what do you want? Do you want it from kind of a, a, a boy's tone, a girl's tone? Do you want yeah, it yeah, quite yeah. robotic? Um these things translate, these things don't. And even in, like, we got, uh, give me the name of the puppeteer. I, I need the name of the puppeteer. But the Japanese version that follows that, because it isn't a yeah. literal translation, is almost the step on, which is who's the, who the hell is the puppeteer? 
So that's right. what the Japanese is doing in, in that point. And we, we sort of tried to mix in those keywords just to kind of have that something different. But it starts off with the word uh, grenade and then grenado, uh, the Japanese. Yeah. But grenado was hitting where the drum fill was. So we had to, and this was the last thing that we had to figure out with the song. We had to pause the drum fill so we could get like Grenado out and then do the drum fill and then move on. Um, and yeah. then Luke, then Luke was like, "Oh yeah, I, I did a little thing with the with the solo, which was uh, uh, just to just to move it around a bit." And that's where he just starts spinning it in the in the head, and I was like, "Oh, it's really good." Um, and <laughs> it's it's kind of this that back and forth of. Uh, of energy and ideas and concentrating on storytelling and it not being about ego, it being about what does the song need. And we got it to a point where we got a mix that we were both super happy with and it went through to mastering and they just blew out the mix entirely. Like the, the vocals were screechy. We not got like the warmth or the balance or anything that was there. And Luke, yeah. Luke was like, I'm going to learn mastering. I'll, I'll, I'll figure wow. this out. So I was like, what? He was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. And then he came back to me later. Huh. He was like, I've got two mixes for you. Um, yeah. I've called one soft and one like pop. I think it was. See, see what you think. And he, he, he rescued it. And I, I, I mentioned earlier about, um, the level of sort of schizophrenia in, uh, in the, the songs that I heard early on, which I, I completely admired, just lots of different influences and, and, and tones and ideas and creativity, but it, it coming through in a whole, but the lads are joy to work with. Um, and there's no ego there, but there's just, there's a, a, a definite, like a confidence between us and as both sort of hyping one another up of going like, oh, I've done this. Oh, I've done this. What if we did this? Oh yeah, I, I did that, but I also did this as well. <laughs> and that's, it's, it just makes it so, it's so energizing. And when I listen to music now, I'm having a different relationship with music because um, I'm just reaching deep into it and it's, it's, it's moving me in it in like crazy ways. And, um, you know, I, I got stupendously into K-pop, which has been amazing. And, um, you know, I, I sent you a, a few songs earlier on just as, you have. just as kind of home. Just, there's a glory, there's a gloriness about them. There's a gloriousness about them and the fact that they're completely kind of, we're entertaining you. Hello. No, we're entertaining you. We don't care if you don't understand the lyrics you can tell by the way that things are, the way the beats go and everything's flowing, the harmonies, the voices, everything is just saying, no, you're going to listen along. And once you start listening, you won't be able to stop listening. Ha 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 kind of thing. And that's, it was kind of, I was kind of like, oh, this is, because I've, <clears throat> I've kind of, I've kind of stayed away a little bit from the kind of the K-pop scene because mm. all you see is kind of like, you know the fat the fandom, and I'm just like I don't. But then you know I was like, okay, I'll give it a chance, and it's like okay, I'm gonna listen to I'm gonna listen to more just to hear it because if I, I'm interested, and in, it's like um, you were talking about 
you were talking actually about, um, and you've talked spoken um, previously about um, when you're talking about Cayman Rider mm. or films that you've been watching, and how having a non-Western take on a film, a piece of music, anything like that, you can get different beats coming in, if you know what I mean, that can sideswipe you, and where you expect something to kind of go into the quiet bit or go into the loud bit or go into the crescendo, it goes in a different direction and it almost like yanks you along. You're going, oh, you yanks, yanks you along with it in a completely different direction, which is something, it's not what you expected. Well, I find, kind of thing I is, find that, um, I mean, I, you you know from from one of the podcasts that I, I do love a lot of Asian entertainment. I um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did the world cinema section for a newspaper for a, for a while when I worked in newspapers just like the Saturday home release stuff but it and I was writing for it because I, I loved the editor and I wasn't getting anything other than free movies but that was fine and I got into a yeah a lot of filmmakers that uh just changed the way that I thought but also the entertainment generally doesn't seem to be the same arc of beat points to get to the end. It's not like a, oh, bit of foreshadowing, bit of foreshadowing. Oh, look, that's come around yeah. again. Here's the moral of your story end. And even in, yeah. I mean, the, the current Cayman Rider, uh, Cayman Rider Zero, it's, it's the first one that I've, sh- I've shared with Paddy and Paddy's kind of in on the ground floor and he's craving every episode like I am. But there's points in that where, um, it feels like they will introduce something where you go, how are you going to address that about episode 37 or something? And they address it in the same episode. And yeah. they're not afraid to... It, it's it's very much the comics that I grew up with. That they're not trying to be relevant and grounded in the real world to an adult audience with an expendable income. They're quite happy to be aware yeah. that they're, um, they're going to be watched by 10-year-old kids. And... I mm-hmm. like that and the way that they can play with tone. They can make you laugh. They can make you cry. They can, uh, there seems to be this element in the storytelling where everybody's having fun. The action, the people that do the choreography are having fun. And, um, but in many ways, it actually feels, this, this current series in particular feels almost British. It feels quite Star Lord 2000 AD <laughs> and having that real, almost British yeah. sense of humor of like taking the piss out of itself. But it means that with this full paint box of colors, um, on, on, on show, you don't know, it becomes unpredictable that you don't know where, what they're going to reach for. And it means that, you know, if you've laughed with a character and they've been silly and they've been serious, like if something tragic happens to them, you are going to cry your eyes out because you know them yeah. like people. And yeah. um, it feels, I, I, I love lyrics. I love storytelling. To remove myself from that and, and lose myself in music to a degree and performance within the K-pop stuff is amazing. Um, the... There was a uh, there's a lady that I I showed you a, a song for uh, a lady called Cacophony, who is yeah. incredibly creative and she really puts me in a mindset when I'm writing my own stuff. But she returned to music that that song that that you listen to. Uh, she returned to music because her mum committed suicide and she was trying to figure out. Um, 
she was trying to process it all through song. Um, and that's why in the, the song that you heard, you can hear those spiraling pianos that kind of are very disconnected from the song and the way that her voice breaks and stuff. Um, but there's parts in the video where she's singing and then she's not singing and it's a mother that's behind her. Yeah. And the la- I think the last, there's a, there's a lyric that comes up on the screen at the end where it goes to black, which if I remember rightly is your breath is my breath. Mm-hmm. And and hearing somebody try and process something like that through song is is inspiring. But then it can go to somebody like uh, Taemin, who is just Christ. He's like a cross between Michael Jackson and David Bowie. He's like incredibly yeah. androgynous. He moves like a snake, and there's a filthy bass line in those two songs that I sent you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was slapping. Just... I was just like that. I was listening to the... Yeah, I was listening along. I was like going... I mean, in... in yeah, this is what... In, I'd like rewind it and start again because it was like... like comes in, it goes... And you're just like, okay then. I mean, in... in, in I didn't expect that. In Move, like the first one that's there, he's, you know, singing to the mm. camera and it's in the rain and stuff. And then this... And this sort of stabs of this bass line and then... The camera moves to a, a to a wider shot where he's about about to dance, and it just goes straight into it. And then the bass starts to move, and the dances, it just flows, and it's it's mesmerizing. I've, and the video to that one is kind of part Blade Runner. It's part it's phenomenal. And I've even seen those isolated dances in widescreen beyond the video, yeah. and they're astonishing. And yeah. um, you know there was there was one to move with Taemin that I I sent you, and then there's NCT one one two seven and uh, yes. Superhuman, which is just a massive massive pop song with a a chorus that's in the stratosphere. But you look at all these videos as well, and the videos are an absolute art, and there's a feeling of kind of something quite 80s about it all with like the different colored hair and the makeup and this and the way that they they move i find it spellbinding and i've watched quite a few reaction channels like there's a, there's a channel called uh, react to the k which is classical musicians uh listening to k-pop songs and explaining what's going on structurally and that is really weird compared to western western songs a lot a lot of the time and that's how I, f- yeah. I ended up finding a lot of artists as well. And it's it's a fascination. But man, I, those those Taemin songs in particular, I, I I can't stop watching those videos, and I can't stop listening to those <laughs> songs. And I, it was the first time today where I'd sat in a coffee shop, and I got really good headphones on to listen to those yeah. songs rather than just watching those phenomenal videos. Um, yeah. And I just sat there, and it just felt like. I was pushing my gravity down through my legs into the arse of the chair and just just sort of just steadying myself and trying to look human as as I was just that baseline. My God. Um but yeah, it's it's so it's it's weird having a, a love of lyrics, but then being transported out of it to somebody singing mostly in another language and I suppose deciphering emotion and intent and structure of songs and all of those stuff at the side, but it's it's a continual 
fascination to discover someone new or something new and hmm so there's a there's a, a kind of ravenous desire to to find those things but there's a definite passion in your voice as you've been talking about like what you've been doing you know yourself and kind of getting back into music again is it a case that you the slice has come back into your life and he goes oh I didn't I kind of I knew you were there but I kind of forgotten how much you how delicious you were and yes I'll have another slice of this and yes extra cream please vicar kind of thing did you I mean because you said you definitely sound like there's there's a passion that's kind of jumped back into your life again the, the music's back again and you're just like saying no, this is the right time. This is when these things are kind of happening and you're just running with it kind of gleefully and you seem to be, you know, already producing some really good stuff and we kind of want to hear kind of like what's kind of going to go down the line. Do you feel kind of you've got a focus back that you've kind of, you know... I think on the, on the one hand, I'm, I'm walking taller than I have mm-hmm. in, a, in a long time and it's been a... It's been a difficult decade since that last band. Uh, those who know me and know the podcast, the last five years have been very difficult in yeah. passing a number of things that happened. Um, and even, you know, overcoming desire and, uh, sorry, anxiety and depression, all that kind of stuff. It's it's all in, all in yeah. the mix. But um, part of not returning to music earlier was I just thought I'd said everything I needed to say um, and within discovering that desire to to write again um, mm-hmm. and having such an amazing collaborator like genuinely I, I think the world of the blow and think that he's crazy crazy talented um, mm-hmm. but he's, he's a, a real pleasure to work with and to strive for and to strive with, um, but it's it's definitely a part of my life which was super important that I missed like mm-hmm. crazy, and I knew not to go near it. Um, but now it's back. I feel like I'm I'm carrying myself in a different way, um, mm-hmm. and that's it, it. It feels nice to do that again. It feels important. And, even when we, you know, when we launched the single and the fact that people were listening and people were going like, oh, this reminds me of like Bowie or Ultravox or Depeche Mode or yeah. and th- things that things that are personal to them or things that they love or um, just it meant meant so much. And the point where we, we launched that single, literally it was days after rescuing that, that horrendous master we got back. Um, and from going from absolute despair to happiness when we got that mix back to releasing it and still you know it's it's there's still that kind of i wouldn't i wouldn't call it sort of a definite frustration but of wanting to get it in front of of more people but knowing that yeah the reasons that we're doing it is because we we're enjoying making this stuff and figuring it out and it's nice to it's nice to kind of bound back and just go like, Christ, I wrote something I'm really proud of today. Um, and I, I think, I think I've got something for it. Uh, and you know, then sharing it and then the ideas like pinging back and forth and stuff. It, yeah. Yeah. If, if 
the stuff that earns the pennies to pay the rent and stuff is the necessity and the drudgery. It's nice to have this bookend on the other side of it where I can just reach in and kind of make stuff that I'm I'm proud of and it, it makes a difference to my you know to my everyday and my being and my sense of self um, yeah hugely really really and you know the, yeah, the fact that everybody yeah. was super kind about the the single and enjoyed it as much as they did is, I was I was just sit, sitting watching those things come in on Twitter on the day and just blobbing <laughs> Because uh, hmm? it was, you know, from from going to from that mixed stuff through to release, and from from crisis to happiness to putting it out there, and just hearing that people were giving it a whirl was just lovely. Yes, I think create. I mean, I think nowadays people create because I think there's a disassociation between what people would consider should be commercially successful against things that kind of are commercially successful. Well, we had a... And I think sometimes... It, sorry, in, in, in like the the last band, we had an A&I guy that came to us who'd been successful with somebody that we were aware of um, and he wanted to sign us at that point and came back to us and said, uh-huh. it's not going to happen. Uh, I have no idea how we'd sell you, which was... Well. Uh, a compliment in a way, uh, but mm. we were we were kind of flabbergasted by it. Um, yeah. In in terms of um, there is no new information. It's which obviously some people will realise is a, a nod and a wink to Dark Souls. Um, is um, I don't know just that joy of being weird, and you know if, if somebody's going to find it, it's going to stand out because it's its own thing from two people that are just having a great time making things yeah. rather than going like this is this is what's selling this week uh, or this is popular it should be like this and it's just yeah you know that's that's yeah. not the reason to do it plus as I was saying previously it's great to get those musicals sort of back and forths going I discovered bears I discovered perfume and capsule like J um, uh, J-pop stuff through through mm-hmm. Luke, mm-hmm. and I think one of the reasons that I've been playing so much Destiny Two is literally so I can go through a fifty-two track best of Perfume album, which the guy behind it has remastered because every single one of them is a fucking banger. And there's a point where I have to stop and do dances when I'm in like strikes and when I'm going through <laughs> levels, just simply because I, I it's that it's there'll be a point where like. Um, chocolate disco comes on and I'm like to just stick the dance mode on and chocolate or disco chocolate or disco and I'm just I'm just grooving and I I don't know that's it, it's it's fun I'm rumbling uh, but yeah it's it, it's no, great I mean it's it, it's part of the philosophy I mean I've always believed that getting out there and doing something is and worrying about whether it's going to be any good is that's just you know, you just have to get out there and do stuff because you never know. And I, that mm. was the whole point of the show was it was speaking to people like yourself who have just got out and and just done it and, you know, are just going to continue to do it. And sometimes it's creating for, because you can, because there's a lot of, you know, because there's a lot of people who can't and having the opportunity to put something out there is, is, a, is a very good thing and more people should kind of be 
doing it. So, um, just to, I guess, to re- reiterate, the, the single's called Give Me the Name of the Puppeteer. Yes. And in brackets, it's got Death Stranding, and it's uh, bands as there is no new information. Um, yes. And we, what we'll do is we'll make sure that we put of we'll put the the links um, in various show notes. And I would I would say because kind of one of the things that we've not discussed on that was there was there was a point where we were both quite excited for Death Stranding, but then there yeah. was the revelation that there was an album coming out, and I said to Luke like, wouldn't it be great to see if we could do something and uh, set ourselves a deadline. Of just going yeah. like right, if if um, if the game's coming out on the Friday, everybody will be talking about things over the weekend. If we can get out on the Monday or the Tuesday or whatever it was, um, yeah. that would at least give us a point where it's like right, this is when we've got finality. This is what we're working towards. And I think again, like early on, I was like, uh, or soon after that, I was like, I've, I think I've got something. It's a it's if. You know the game, you can probably pass it. If you don't know the game, you probably just think it's a little bit weird. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and that was it. And then it was a case of sort of assembling the song. And but it was coming. It, it wasn't coming from a point of oh, you know, we'll we'll try and jump on this bandwagon. Although you know, it's, it's a it was a cool thought if we got a decent song together to go right we'll see if we can throw this at Kojima or any fan base or anything like that and see if we can stir something up but it was coming from a from a good place and I think early on we knew that there was something song wise that we wanted to persist with that we were kind of onto something um, and I I think it stands in good stead with the official album especially given that one of the songs on there rhymes uh ho- um home alone phone and pay as you go <laughs> at which point all bets were off oh absolutely mm. you know so as soon yeah. as i saw the fact that we we're using monster in the game monster cans in the game I went all bets are off you can do whatever you want mm. yeah, so it's a massive kind of free it's a massive kind of free for all um I mentioned at the top of the show that you are part of a duo of one of my kind of favourite um, podcasts out there that deal in two sides of a, a familiar geek story. Um, one of them is um, anything video game related and you talk about um, various video games. And you've got your other side of the story, which is you're talking about popular culture that you guys um you and uh, Mr. Uh, Daddy Stardust, I think mm. we should call him, um, kind of enjoy, uh, which is Twin Humanities, which I am just going to say is a fantastic podcast, which is um, full of passion, full of joy, full of wonder, full of just um, extra little bits that make you go on little internet searches for various things that are out there that you didn't realise that were out there. And tis the series isn't to be merry because what will be coming up very soon is possibly one of the one of my most favourite game of the year video game podcast shows I was that I wait crazy for crazy proud of last year. year's and uh, it was if, amazing if anything uh, that we I still think that's the best show that we've ever done where we essentially did songs for every one of our um, every one of our choices and in my case yes. uh, invented personalities 
uh, to sing the song. Yeah. And Paddy had got, a, in the charity shop that he worked in, he got this um, this thing that had come in, which is basically um, songs or, or tunes for people that wanted to do adverts or it was like incidental music. And um, he'd sent this over a while ago and we'd spoken about like, you know, it'd be, be fun to kind of do something with this. Um, and then I, th- I think there was certainly a momentum in doing that of just going like, it's been a while since I've sung before. And that was kind of kind of fun, even if I was doing kind of a, a Cockney guy singing about Tetris. Um, I just thought it was, but a, we d- it was, it was hilarious. It was... We we had it. We had such a great time on that, and we were just we super proud of it. Um, but with yeah. with the with the shows, uh, yeah, Twin Humanities, Dark Souls, and anything that's vaguely Dark Souls um, related, and then other oh, humanities can be anything from movies, TV, books, music, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think we we probably avoid a lot of the 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 coarser aspects of the Dark Souls fan base because we just chat shit, we like each other and we probably have absolutely yeah. no no clue what's going on and get things wrong all the time. <laughs> but we're just we're just just two mates having a natter. And and when just we get together when we get together, especially you know, um recently it's been a case of we haven't had a chance to catch up ourselves for a while. So it's just you know, and I, I love the boy to pieces. I think he's I think he's great and I'm I'm so proud of the 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 dad that he's going to be. Also, what an epic yeah. troll from his newborn daughter uh, to literally wait <laughs> it out until it was my birthday. She'd not even <laughs> met her dad, and she was already throwing that stone across the river and watching it bounce across the lake. Well it's played, Violet. And well played. Well played. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, thank you very very much for coming on. It's um, been, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to me disappear into my head and, and kind of trying to it's, pass stuff it's, that's just glitter in my veins. Just love it. Fantastic. Just um, If people want to keep an eye on you on the internet webs, where can we find you on the internet webs? You can get me at Coffee Jesus. That's with a Z in the middle of the Jesus bit. Uh, mm. We're at Twin Humanities or... Uh, you can get to the music at uh, No New Info Music on Twitter, or if mm. you go to Spotify, Apple Music, any of those, um, uh, No New Information, and uh, give me the name of the puppeteer uh, so you can stream it. Or, as some folks have done, buy it, which has been remarkable. Yeah. Who knew that that was a thing? And thank you. You can do that. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. Um, if you want to keep an eye on what we are up to, you can go to our... Well, Twitter is the main thing that we live on, which is um, you can't fit full lovely words on Twitter, so it's M something awful. So that's at M something awful. If you want to send us an email, if you have listened along tonight and you says, well, I'm in the creative person and I would like to come on and we'd love to speak to more people who are involved in kind of creating anything at all, and if you'd like to have a chat, then please jump on board and say hello and we can get you on the show. But you can email us at makesomethingawful at gmail.com. We've got our website, which is makesomethingawful.fireside.fm. Um, so come and check us out. The previous episodes that we have, we had an architect on, we've had an author on, we've had a teacher on. I mean, 
there's no bounds to people who are going out there. And remember, the main couple of things is that, you know, things like, you know, your first Long Island, your first Long Island iced tea, it probably will be awful. Your first attempt at, I don't know, um, stained glass windows will be probably pretty awful. Your first attempt at laying laminate flooring is going to be pretty awful, but you can't get to your 50th. Until you get what we'll what we'll say in that in that regard. Just to, sorry, I'm going to disconnect you from this because it's just reminding me of something. But there's, uh, I'm a really big fan of Furuki Murakami, um, and there's uh-huh. a bit in one of his novels where this guy he's reconnecting with people that he knew, and he goes to visit this girl, and she's moved to Finland. And she's got a couple of um, couple of children now, and she's married a Finnish gentleman. And at the point where he arrives, like he meets the husband, and the husband's talking about her, and he says that uh, they've got like a kiln in the house, and uh, he's always done pottery, and she does pottery as well. And he said that you know the stuff that he does is very polished, very very refined. He's been doing it over a number of years. Um, he knows what he's doing. He knows what to look for, and there's a perfection there. He said that the things she got into it because she was curious and she does it out of love. And he said that the things that she does are imperfect, but within that there are moments of honesty and there are touches which he never could have made, which are more resonant um, to him artistically than anything, but they're also resonant of the woman that he loves. And he sees that in everything that she creates, uh, even you know, subconsciously within this pottery. So I don't know that, that, that sticks out within that regard. So I, I apologize, I apologize for the interruption, but it's, it, it stays I'm in my mind. And I, I think it's, I think it's so beautiful. And, and also what a wonderful way to speak about the enigma of somebody that you, that you love through something that's near subconscious. It's, I, I just think it's, it's gorgeous. I have, it's lovely. I, I, you, you know, I feel that my analogies are rubbish. And on that <laughs> note, <laughs> thank you again, CJ. No, very it's been much a pleasure. Thank you very show. much, my friend. And for everybody else, thank you for listening. Remember, tell people about us. It's one of the ways that we get our show out there. But until the next time, remember, make something awful. And goodbye. <laughs>